O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Heavenly Father, as your gathered people today, we ask that you would speak to us through the glorious revelation of your word. God, there are some that are here this morning and God, our hearts need to be revived. Father, some of us need to be cleaned. Lord, we need to once again now learn to rejoice and savor uh, Your Word to us. And so we ask, even as we open this poetry this morning and this psalm, Lord, that it would be as precious gold. That it would be to us like sweet honey dripping from the honeycomb. Lord, that You would be our rock and our Redeemer. So Holy Spirit, we invite You here uh, through uh, in power this morning to speak through Your Word to every person that's here. We ask for a greater revelation of who You are that would uh, spring up in us a greater response of worship in our lives. And so no matter what our story or background is today, Father, in this time right now, would You make Yourself known for Your glory and for our joy. And God, I ask that You would help me as I share that the words that are from You, that You would lead and speak uh, right now, the words that are from You would resonate and encourage uh, this church. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Alright, go ahead and grab a seat. Have you ever been... I mean, you live in the Pacific Northwest, but you've been out outside. You can't see them last night or t- today because of the smoke. But you know what it's like to be up in the mountains and to look up at the stars. Or to watch the sunset over the water and absolutely marvel at the handiwork of God. Uh, I'm always reminded this with my kids because whenever we're camping, you know, you look up at the stars and you try to find like where the constellations are. Or you, have you ever tried to actually count the stars? I always think of Ecclesiastes. He's like, meaningless, meaningless. You know, <laughs> there's no way you're going to count the stars. But there's this moment, I don't know where, for many of us when we're out in nature where we feel somewhat close, like closer to God. There's a thin spot between heaven and earth when we're out just in the, in the wild. When we're in the city, filled with man-made objects and buildings and, and cars and technology and all those things, it's easy to start thinking that man is kind of a big deal. Kind of like the Tower of Babel, right? It's like, oh yeah, we're kind of a big deal and, and we're kind of the center of our lives. But when we get out in nature, like really out in the wild uh, and out in the mountains, and when we look up at the stars and we see the sun, we're reminded that God is huge. He is huge, and we are really small. And that's how this psalm uh, starts out. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims uh, His handiwork. It's like this idea that we just look up, and God is on display. For the Christian, for us, it's it's a worshipful moment when we're in nature, because we're out there and we just go, Wow, God, You are awesome. And we worship the Creator. For the non-Christian, 
For the, the person who doesn't believe in God as the creator of all, they look out and they worship the created. And they go, wow, this is awesome. This is bigger than me. Uh, I'm going to find some kind of purpose or meaning in uh, what is created. But in verses 1-6, through six, we see God just reminding us of who He is and His majesty and His glory. It says that uh, the stars proclaim the majesty of God. Next time you're out and you look at the stars, just go, God, You are awesome. And then it says the sun is on a trajectory that God put it on. The, the hugeness of the sun is obedient to God. He sets it on a trajectory. It says he, it's his tent. It's the path that he put it on. And you just go, wow, God, you are incredible. Like a strong man that runs his course, the rhythm of every single day, the sun going down, the sun coming up. As the sun runs its course, it reminds us of the sovereignty and the power and uh, the majesty of God. Uh, if you guys have uh, your Bible, flip over to Romans, if you will. And I just want to cross this over with a couple spots that just directly connect and actually quote Psalm 19 from, from Romans. You wonder, well, as God is revealed in nature, so yeah, so what? What is the big deal? How is He generally revealed in nature? Romans chapter 1, verse 19. Give you a second just to flip there if you're trying to keep up. Romans 1.19, it says, What can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain to all people. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes... Namely, His eternal power, His divine nature, they've been clearly perceived. Ever since, creation, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. So we have this moment where uh, Paul is telling us that all men are responsible for knowing God and are without excuse to know God because He has revealed Himself to all men from creation forward across the globe. His majesty has been on display. He's been revealed. But as the text tells us, it's, it's, his speech is not an audible speech. There's, it's like nonverbal communication. And those of you that are married know that nonverbal communication only goes so far. <laughs> like with Sean and I, we've been married 13 years, 13 years, yeah, and... I would just about mess that one up. I looked for the nonverbal communication to help me out on there. But you know, uh, those of you that have been married a long time, or you know a friend, or have a best friend that you know super well, you could just kind of look at each other, and you know what each other is thinking. You could be in a conversation with other people, and you're just like, yep, okay, cool, yeah, shut up, okay, I'll shut up, yeah. 
all right, uh, oh, that was funny, okay, or hey, it's time to leave, you know, those, you can get those cues. We have lots of nonverbal communication. In fact, my wife has amazing nonverbal communication with the kids. They could be running, doing something, screaming, and she has a look that will just freeze them in their tracks, and they say, I'm sorry, like right away. They just know, busted, right? Nonverbal communication. There's so many things that we just can say. You could see someone's passion. You can tell uh, about the things that someone cares about, how engaged someone is in a conversation. Uh, you can sense so much from someone's nonverbal communication, but it only goes so far. It has limits. At some point, we need words. It's like last night before we were going to bed, we were having a little husband-wife chat, and the conversation was, so, we need to get the kids up, fed, go to the bathroom, dressed, have breakfast, we need our coffee, and we need to be on the road at 7 a.m. in order to make it to Restoration Road in time. Can we do that? Well, that conversation is specific. It's more than just like, how are we doing? Are we okay? Are you near? Do you care? It's a specific conversation. It has details to it. Can you imagine having that conversation without words? It's like charades, you know, before about 7 a.m., you know? Uh, having that conversation without words would just be, uh, it, it would absolutely fail. And we probably wouldn't be here on time this morning, or there would be lots of frustration uh, getting out the door because we certainly wouldn't be on the same page, and I'd probably still be in bed. So there's, or we wouldn't have coffee, and then we'd be in big trouble, right? So uh, the nonverbal communication only goes so far, and this is what in Romans 10, uh, this is how uh, Paul continues to unpack this. In Romans 10:14, he says, "How then will they call on him?" in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So he's saying that the Gospel message, there's a more specific message about God that needs to be heard. The general revelation of God has gone forth through all men, through all kind, all across the globe. So we're all responsible for the knowledge of God, but there's a more specific, more, more clear revelation that we need in order to be saved. And he says, how are they to preach if they're not sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the Gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And then he quotes Psalm 19 and says, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And so this general revelation of who God is, is seen in nature, but we need something more. We need the Word of God. And a few uh, months ago, I posted a picture on social media of, and it was just a mag majestic like picture of, I forget, like a sunset or skyscraper, the mountains. Oh yeah, it was a skiing picture in the mountains. All right. And 
one person commented and said, this is my church, or that's my church. And I just thought, well, have you ever had that kind of feeling of like, and, and what they meant to say was, I worship God when I'm in God's creation. It demands like a response from me, and I feel close to God. But don't confuse it with church. Uh, church, church is uh, a little bit different. Don't substitute it for church. Because church, as we know from the Word of God, is the gathered people of God who worship God together corporately, who hear the proclaiming of the Gospel through God's Word, who celebrate together the worship and the sacraments in the Lord's table together. Church is is the chosen people of God gathered together. So when you go camping and when you're out in the mountains, it's okay to be like, God, you're awesome. I worship you for who you are. You're majestic, but it doesn't substitute for the gathered people of God. And if your closest experience with God is out in the mountains or out in nature, for me it's surfing or skiing, when I'm in the ocean or up on the mountains or Wherever it is, I don't know, fishing, whatever your deal is, hiking, you love it, but I get it, it's, it's majestic, but if that's the highest experience of worship that you have, if that's the most that you know or the closest that uh, you feel to God, you need the rest of Psalm 19. And in verse 7, uh, he goes on and begins talking about hearing God in the Scriptures. It's interesting to point out that in the first six, past, first six verses, this is about God's general revelation, and the name God is only mentioned once, and it's, it's the most generic name for God in the Old Testament. It's the word El. It's just that He's majestic, He's ruler, He's a covenant-keeping God. It's El, and it's only mentioned once. In these next few verses, the name Lord is mentioned seven times in repetition. And this is the specific revealed name of God, Yahweh. So we're going from God's general revelation of who He is to His specific revelation. And so this is what it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And there's different words here about God's Word. And here it's the law. The law is the comprehensive term for God's revealed will. The law is perfect in His Word, which is flawless. It's perfectly balanced. It's missing nothing. It's complete. It's the complete revelation of who God is. There's something lacking. There's something general just about uh, about, about nature and God revealed in the heavens. It's, it's majestic. But now we have the perfect, revealed will of God. The law of God. The next verse. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Making the wise simple. The testimony is the aspect of truth that attests to God Himself and a term that's used for a covenant declaration. This testimony or the covenant of God is confirmed. It is verified. You can trust it. It's dependable. And it it humbles people. It makes the wise simple. 
The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Precepts and commandments indicate the precision and the authority of which God addresses us. The word uh, right is morally right or straight. It's like a plumb line. The, the precepts, they're, they're a line that we know of what is moral, right, and wrong. A straight edge that you go by. You judge all standards by Scripture. Things aren't right unless they're right by the Word of God. The fear of the Lord is clean. Enduring forever. The fear of the Lord emphasizes the human response that is fostered by His Word. When God's Word is in us, then it it creates a righteous uh, fear towards Him. And there's a response to Him. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Rules or ordinances, they're the judicial decisions of the Lord. That Yahweh God, He is... Uh, a judge, and he's recorded his law and his rules that he has for us, and they're altogether righteous. Every verse is trustworthy. To be true, meaning they're reliable, they're dependable. So it is God's word that is the the measuring stick. It's His law. It's His that we live under and live by. And most of us start going, "Oh my gosh, I'm under." Authority, gosh, it's so difficult. All these rules. But then he says, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. I don't know what the drippings of the honeycomb really look like that David has pictured. But the best thing I could think of is when my wife bakes a cake, and my mom did this too. Moms just love to do this. But when they're like baking a cake, you've got the sweet batter, and finally after they're done with the mixer, they give it to the kids and go, hey, you want a lick of this? And what do the kids do? They come running, running from like all ends of the house, like, and usually there's only two beaters, and we have three kids, so it's a disaster, right? <laughs> it's like, who wants this? And it's like survival of the fittest to the, the beaters, whoever gets there, gets there first. But when kids get to lick a, like a cake beater and the sweetness of it, uh, they don't sit down like adults do and, and take like a little swipe or whatever. They're going to need some serious wet wipes afterwards. Right? Or because they just take the sucker and it's like they're wearing it, you know? You know, and dripping. And then if you're not careful, they stick their hand right in a cake bowl, you know? They're just, they're going for it. And I wonder how many of us, though, uh, actually are that way when it comes to the Word of God. When we are just like, do we value it so highly and treasure it so highly, like honey dripping from a honeycomb? When we read the Word or eat the Word, we are just like, oh, that was the sweetest thing ever. I've got to have more of that. And when we hear God's Word, we come running to it. There was a time, and there have been times in history, when the Word of God was 
so desired and so revered that when people got a hold of it, it was so treasured. I think of like Tyndale in the Reformation, you know, when he was able to get the word. The dude memorized the New Testament in Greek. Memorized it. He was so hungry for the Word of God. And as the Word went out into people's own language, to just have a piece of the Word is just to be treasured. They would commit it to memory, read it over and over and over, and they would just stand up and read it publicly to each other. In the persecuted church, and where there's areas, <coughs> as we prayed for this morning, where it's difficult to have a Bible, or when the Bible's first translated into someone's language, it is like the most treasured thing. If the house was burning down, they would run in to get the Bible. All other things perish. I need the, we need. We need the Word of God. And today, though, it seems like we have more access to great biblical content and teaching and commentaries and versions. And I've got more Bibles in my house than I even know what to do with. And yet we're more apathetic to the Word of God as a culture and as a church than we've been for a long time. And oftentimes, as a pastor, I kind of feel like a parent trying to get my kids to eat their vegetables. It'll be really good for you. It'll be really good. Make you strong. It'll help you grow. You know, trying to encourage people in the Word of God. We've lost something. There's a disconnect somewhere where we read David's words and we recognize that's not a reflection of our own heart or our own church or our own family or culture. We go, wow. Your word is to be desired. And they're more than gold. Even fine gold. Sweeter also than honey. And drippings of the honeycomb. So many other things we desire more than this. And um, I just want to point out this morning that it is, uh, for, for most Christians, we know that the Scriptures are God's Word on paper. We know that it is His revealed will uh, to us. And by His Word, we know that that's how we know who God is. But for some reason, we don't treasure the Word. We don't feast on it. We don't meditate on it. And oftentimes, we don't love the Word of God. And To not love the Word of God, though, is really to not love God. I mean, it would be like... A husband who tells his wife, I love you. Just don't talk. I just can't stand it when you open your mouth. <laughs> just, uh, just, I love you though. I love to look at you, but, 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 uh, but I just can't stand to be with you. What kind of love is that, right? It's crazy to say, I mean, I can't imagine like saying to my wife, like, hey, I just want to remind you that I love you, but please don't say anything to me today. Don't, don't want to hear your voice uh, right now. I don't, I don't want to know what
I, I love you, but I don't want to know your heart. I don't really want to know your will. And I don't really want to adjust my life around your wants or needs or desires at all. But I love you. And you would respond. That's no kind of love. That's not love at all. And so to not love God's Word really reveals in us an actual lack in our love for the Lord. A lack of desire to really know Him. And so I want to give today five uh, ways that oftentimes Christians deny our love for God and for His Word. And the first one is this, by not reading it. I know this is really simple. But it's by not reading the Word. If we believe, as Matthew 4.4 tells us, that this book is actually the bread of life, and Jesus commands us to eat of it, and by it, it is our food, it nourishes us spiritually, the way we eat is to read it, to meditate on it, to study it, to delight in it. It shouldn't, pastors, should I, I've never talked to Sam about this, but I'm sure he would probably agree, it, it, pastors it shouldn't be like trying to get, like parents trying to get their kids to eat their vegetables, we should be like, no, let me help you to understand what you're reading and studying and what you're desiring to know. That's that's a pastor's heart, right? The more you eat it, the more you develop a taste for it. And the bottom line is this. When we don't get into the Word, we're really saying that we don't need the Bible. And so the question, obviously, is are you delighting in God's Word? Are you hungering for it? Do you savor it? Are you reading it? And number two is by not seeking it. We can tell what we value by who we turn to when things go wrong in our lives. You know who your friends are because they're the people that you call when you get bad news or things don't go well. Um, and this week in our lives, we got some somewhat concerning news. I had a uh, inch chunk taken out of my shoulder and a piece of skin sent in for biopsy to figure out whether or not I have melanoma or not. And it's one of those things where it could be the beginning of a really long and difficult journey for our family. At the same time, it could be I had a mole cut out of my shoulder. No big deal. Move on with life. But it wasn't something that we posted on Facebook to everyone because it wasn't something that we wanted everyone to freak out about and know and we wanted to you know, have the whole world. We just called a few friends and just said, hey, we just want you to know this is going on in our life and we'd like to ask you to pray for us. We're not sure what it is. Uh, we're not sure how serious it is. We've kind of been a waiting game for a week. But uh, you love us and we love you. And you know, and would you just pray for us that we would trust God, that in God's sovereignty, that we would have God's peace, that He has a plan for our lives and it's for His ultimate glory and it's for our joy and that we would rest in the sovereignty of God as a family. But you know, when things go wrong in life or you get bad news, you know uh, 
who, what you truly value by who you reach out to. If you don't know what to do, or you don't know who it's wise to reach out to, or you ask the question, well, where, where do you go when you don't know what to do? Or, or when you're told what you're doing is questionable, when someone confronts you and says, hey, you're out of line, or this isn't acceptable, what do you do with that? Who's the arbitrator that decides in a conflict who is right and who is wrong? what is wise and what is foolish. The fallen human condition, our reflex is to look inwards. We go and, we, and, and we look at our hearts and, we, and, and, and well-meaning people give us terrible advice. And they say, do whatever feels right to you. The worst advice on the planet. <laughs> do whatever feels right to you. Be true to yourself. And when you're trying to figure out, well, how do I feel? And what do, what do I do about what so-and-so said or what so-and-so said? Or how do I handle this situation at work or in my family? The impulse and the falseness is to look within rather than without. And this is crazy dangerous. So God's Word is something to be sought after. And we know that we value it when things go difficult or when we get bad news or when we're confronted with difficult, tr- difficult uh, conversations or in conflict. Do you seek out God's Word? Is it trustworthy? Do you trust it? Number three way that we show we don't love God's Word is by not obeying it. Another way is we just simply don't do what it says. There's a point in time when we have to come face to face with what the Bible says about our lives. Initially, this is the moment when we first come to conversion, when we first believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, and we believe and we repent and we turn our lives back to Him. That's the first moment when we ter- decide that we will obey who God is and we bow the knee and we trust in Him. But then there's all of these moments along the way that we are convicted in our hearts. There's moments when we realize that what we want is not what God has laid out in His Word. There's moments when we realize that there's a dualism in our life. As Paul says, it's like in Romans, you know, it's the things that I want to do or the things I do not do as he struggles with this. And what I do do, I do not want to do. And he's just got this struggle back and forth. And we go, and really the choice is, whether or not we will submit ourselves to God and His Word. When we remember what the Bible says, all Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. It's crazy to think that the Bible is God's Word, His revealed will, His perfect Word, and then that it has the authority to speak into our lives, but then not do what it says. And so, is there an area of your life today that you know is out of line with the revealed will of God that you are in disobedience to? Is there an area of your life where you know that God's Word has been clear 
and you are not obedient to it. It reveals in us a lack of love for God and for His Word. So are you submitted to the Word? Does it guide your decisions? Is it the measuring line to discern God's will? And the last one is number four, by not applying it. This means uh, we have a big gap today in what we know and what we apply in our life. Usually the gap is not that we need to have more Bible studies and not to learn more about God's Word, which is certainly helpful and good reminder, but the gap is really applying it. Bible study is not just reading, studying, and memorizing the Word of God. It is reading, studying, memorizing, and applying the Word of God. And so this means that we should be able to have our decisions supported or at least framed by Scripture. If you're making a decision or going a direction in your life or have a conviction or a belief, you should be able to test that from the Word of God and the Word of God shouldn't contradict your decision or your direction. It should support it. And that's how you know you're applying the Word. In Romans 12.1, Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and testing that you may be able to discern what the will of God is, this good, pleasing, and acceptable will. Oftentimes, I have college students and young people all the time go, hey, I just want to know God's will for my life. And I'm like, well, do you read the Bible? They're like, well, no. <laughs> like, well, that would be a really good place to start. He, he wrote it down, gave it to you. Um, and so oftentimes we're looking for God to write His will for our life in the stars, and out in nature. And we forget He's given us like His will and His, in His Word. And the last one is by not preaching it. This is one of the reasons I love this church. Because the Word of God God is taught faithfully week in and week out. But sadly, it's not so in every church or in every gathering that claims to be a church. Uh, pastors who do not teach the Bible from the pulpit, they betray any commitment to God in their preaching. As nice and entertaining as stories are and jokes and as moving as authenticity is, nothing can bear the weight of God's Word being proclaimed. It's ridiculous for a pastor to claim that the Scriptures are the Word of God and yet fail to preach it. And all this comes down to the uncomfortable fact that based upon many of our lives, we don't need the Bible. If we don't read it, then it must not. It must mean because we don't really think we need it. If we don't seek it, then it's because we don't really think we need to do so. If we're not obeying it, that's because we don't think we need to. And if we don't apply it, then it must be because we also don't think that we need to. And if we don't preach it, then it must be because we don't think that we need to on some level. But the Word of God is its perfect. It's like sweet honey. And now we'll go to kind of the last closing part. Part one is God's general revelation. Part two section is really about God's specific revelation and the glory of His Word. And part three, this is 
uh, David's heartfelt prayer and his response. And this is what he says. Moreover, in them, speaking of God's Word, in them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. That means uh, uh, external sins instead of hidden sins. And let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And here's the prayer. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. It starts with the question, who can discern his errors? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, no one. Uh, Who can keep your servant from willful sins? This is like, the best I can hope for is the sins that I know that I commit. Because I can see those. But what about what about the internal sins? I'll never under really overcome the sins of pride or greed, the things that I can't see. The sins that most dominate us are the ones that we can't justify. We don't see them. Not because they're so small, but because our hearts are so blind to our own condition. Verse 14, he says, Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And you wonder, how can David say this? How can he say, after the law of God, after knowing that he's guilty, after knowing that he doesn't measure up, both in his hidden sins and his external sins, how can he say, how bad I am, yet I have confidence that that God, you will look at my heart and you'll be delighted in what you see. God, you'll look into my heart and I'm acceptable to you. How can he say, God, you're my redeemer? He knows that God is a redeemer because he has read the word of God. He knows that there's a greater David than him. A greater servant than this one who mediates and delights in the law of God completely where he has failed. And on the law of the Lord, he meditates day and night. When Satan came after Jesus, Jesus always answered with Scripture. When Jesus dealt with the religious leaders, he always quoted Scripture. Jesus was so delighted and so saturated in the law of God and in the Word of God, that when we pierced His side and stabbed Him and He bled, He screamed out Scripture. It was so in Him. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. In keeping them, there is great reward. And not keeping them, there is punishment. Now look to Jesus. Jesus died on the cross and He took our punishment for disobedience. And so His reward comes to us. The reward for Him keeping the perfect law is our reward. Galatians 3 says, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. 
So Jesus' blessing for the complete obedience of the law. He's the only one who's never sinned. He's the only one who upheld the law perfectly. And His blessing is passed on to us. And this is the Gospel. This is what revives our hearts. This is why David can say, after he is completely exposed by the law of God as a sinner, both outward and inward, he can say, Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. When we look at the law and when we look at Scripture, we see Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. Only, this is, this is it, only can the, the, the main point of Psalm 19, only when you see Jesus on every page can you savor the Word of God. Only when you see Jesus on every page does it all of a sudden become like honey dripping from the honeycomb. Only then does it become more precious than gold or anything that money can buy. We know that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the law and and the entire Word. Luke 24 says, And then He said to them, Jesus speaking, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and in the Prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to Him, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Jesus Himself says, I am the fulfillment of the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He passed the test in the garden. And His obedience is now imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, His blood now cries out not for condemnation, but for acquittal and for forgiveness. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave his uncomfortable or to leave his all that was comfortable and familiar and to go into a world void not knowing whether he went to create a new or, or knowing that he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we get to look at God. And because of Jesus, we are able to say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son. Your only Son, whom you love from us. And Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and He took the blow of justice that we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and to discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph 
who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus is the true and better Moses. He stands in the gap between people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck the rod of God's justice and now, now gives us water in the desert when David says, He is my rock. Jesus is the true and better Job. He's the innocent, truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory. And though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it himself. Jesus is the true and better Esther so who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one. He didn't just risk his life but he gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses. He's the Passover lamb. He's the innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death would pass over us. He's the true temple. He's the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king. He's the true sacrifice, the true lamb, and He is the true bread. And when you begin to see Jesus on every page of Scripture, you begin to savor and love God's law because it's perfect. And we love the Word of God because it tells us the story of how Jesus saves sinners like us from death to life. Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, We ask today that, Lord, just as the psalmist prays in Psalm 139, we ask, Lord, would you search me, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in us and lead us to the way everlasting. Lord, would the words of our mouths and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in your sight? Or Lord, You are our rock and our Redeemer. Your law is perfect and it revives the soul. It is more precious to us than gold and it is sweeter than pure honey that drips from the honeycomb. God, because Your words alone save us. They show us who You are holy and majestic and glorious and who we are, broken and sinful, inside and out. But God, we know that Jesus is the true and better version of ourselves. God, that You save us from death to life. And so this week, Lord, would You remind us again of the great love that You have revealed to us in Your Word. Lord, would You give us a greater revelation of who You are. I pray for Restoration Road Church that when they open Your Word this week, it would be like a starving kid going to the grocery store where everything just looks good and jumps out at them. Would You speak to them 
the same ancient truths in new revelation, in new ways that would cut to their heart. Give them a greater revelation of You that would demand a greater response in our lives that we would see You and savor You in every story on every page. And most of all, we thank You for the revelation of Your Word that Jesus, You save us from death to life. And if there's anyone that's here today that has not even taken that first step of obedience and responded in repentance and believed in Your promises, God, I pray that today that they would turn from their life and trusting in themselves and that they would put their full faith and trust in You and what You've accomplished on the cross on our behalf. Lord, would You open their eyes to see You as their Redeemer. Would You revive our souls. So God, thank You for the gift of Your Word today. Thank You for the psalmist who not only delivers us beautiful poetry, but powerful theology that in creation and specifically in Your Word, we can know You, God. Because the story of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.